welcome to the Generation AI Podcast, Episode 2. We're pleased to be hosting John Zeitler and Keith White from the National Weather Service. Also, Matthew Waters, a certified storm spotter, chaser, and aspiring meteorologist. Their time is... We'll jump right into the questions. Welcome to episode two. Uh, welcome, John and Keith, to uh, the Generation AI podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, first off, John, could you just walk us through what's your what's your background like? What's your experience? Sure, I'm John Zeitler. I'm the Science and Operations Officer at the Austin San Antonio Weather Service Office. We're located in New Braunfels. I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota. I got my bachelor's degree at Iowa State University and my master's at Texas A&M. I'm now in my 30th year with the Weather Service and 35 years overall in the weather enterprise. Um, I did work at a regional climate center in the Southeast United States for a few years. Uh, otherwise, in the Weather Service, I worked at an agricultural uh, forecasting office in College Station, and I've also worked at forecast offices in Rapid City, South Dakota, the Houston Galveston office, and at Austin San Antonio for the last 21 years. Yeah, uh, my name is Keith White. I'm a meteorologist and climate services leader for uh, the National Weather Service three counties in South Central Texas. I've been here since the beginning of 2020. Uh, my weather service career actually started in the snowier climbs of Upper Michigan at the Marquette Michigan National Weather Service. Midwesterner, uh, like John, uh, but I came down here to do a master's at Texas A&M uh, back in 2013 to 2015, and I've bounced around quite a bit since then. But um, you know, I've, I've really been enjoying uh, getting to know the the weather and the climate down here in South Central Texas, and providing um, you know, uh, service for for both weather and climate uh, for the the public and for our partners in in government here in in the region. So, have either of you used ChatGPT? So I guess that one's just, he says half. Um, I had some fun with it. I guess I'll say fun with it. Back in the February, March timeframe, I tried a number of, uh, sort of a range of queries. And I even tried uh, having it submit, like I said, an idea, I want some Python code. Actually, it was sort of funny. I said, I want Python code with a cartoon image of the Washington Monument and a giant Texas flag at the top rotating around. And then I want a cannon firing fake little bullets or whatever projectiles across. And it gave me, it gave me the code that pretty much looked like, it looked good to me. I couldn't quite get it to work on my laptop. I needed a bunch of libraries and stuff. And I was just like, well, I'm a little bit frustrated, but it, it looked, I mean, I'm just you know looking through the code. It looked like it would work, <laughs> I guess. So, uh, so I played around with it uh, up to that extent. <laughs> But I tend to do stuff like that. So another thing I did is um, just, and I don't know, I'm, I'm like the per, I'm like the world's, I wouldn't say world's worst programmer. Um, I'm the world's most frustrated programmer. <laughs> yes, we'll say with, with error messages and that. Um, but I am one of the better testers. So one of the things I put in there is I, I put into to ChatGPT, I said, who would win in a fight of Siri versus Alexa? Okay. Now, what was interesting, of course, is I, and this is sort of one of the downfalls, I guess I saw, is I got back this, well, you know, fighting's against, you know, my moral code and blah, blah, blah. And okay, so whatever, I get that. But, but the thing there, it sort of shows you a limitation. Because obviously I was asking a ridiculous question in the first place, right? Um, and I didn't, and even just the level of two other um, cyber entities, quote, fighting each other is crazy enough. But then just the notion of what's a fight. Now, it took it as a physical, like somebody's going to go hit somebody or whatever. It could just be a verb. I didn't say verbal fight. I could have added that word. Um, but it, the fact that it just wouldn't even give a response back to that, I thought was a little, you know, off-putting to me in a certain sense. Because obviously, I was just asking a, a crazy question. So I think I think you're going to see, um, I, th I think most people have probably seen some of that where it's, uh, it, there's a naivety, I guess, with it. Um, that uh, it now, and then there was another query I did where I, I said, Tell me about something like the supercalifragilistic book of greatness that's in the uh, in the New Braunfels Public Library. 
And it's like, I don't know anything about this. I said, oh, it's, it's sort of widely known book. I said, it's only one physical copy. It sits in the library. So I was trying to just sort of bait it a little bit. Like, in other words, it shouldn't be in your database because I said, it's one physical book. There's no write-up. Of course, it's a fake book. Um, and it was interesting. It, it went about five or six rounds with me. Like, can I have some more information about this book before I finally said, I think this must be a joke or, or something like that, or it's fictitious. So that was another one that was a little bit, you know, I, I mean, again, if you just, I always compare things, you walk up to somebody on the street, right? And I said the same thing that well, most people just be like, I don't care. <laughs> but uh, it was it was, it was was interesting to play around with. I think um, some of the things that we can get into questions a bit more is, is, is uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, media on, you know, people doing, I guess we'll say, text or verbal kinds of things with it, you know, like high school kids with their book report or whatever. And to me, the more exciting part is the data analysis and the coding, especially something like Python. Um, and I haven't uh, paid up yet for the sort of paid version that allows you to do that with um, with uh, some of the uh, uh, code, um, uh, what is it called here? I'm, I'm lost my mind here. The uh, code interpreter, some of that kind of stuff. Um, that's where it would help out somebody like me who, yeah, I can code, but I get extremely frustrated when things don't work like they're supposed to work. And usually it's not with the, with the um, algorithm I'm trying to do. It's usually with input and output. You know, like I don't have, I think I have access to the certain database. Oh, no, I don't. Oh, no, you have to load this library and then you have to do this. You know, it just seems like a lot of work. Um, and I see a, a big value in having getting a database and then saying to ChatGPT, hey, go to this database, uh, do me a scatter plot of variable X versus variable Y. Bam. You know, if I were to do that in Python, that's not hard. But again, it would take some time. If I do that in Excel, it would take some time. Um, and then the, and then the other real powerful thing, and I can cover this as we get into some questioning with this, I follow this uh, professor, Ethan Mollick, who's at uh, Wharton University of Pennsylvania. He has a, a uh, substat called One Useful Thing. And he basically it's weekly, and he lists out a lot of different uh, just straight up applications. Uh, and the really powerful thing then uh, is to make changes. So again, let's say I go in and say plot variable x versus y. Okay, well wait, now I want to do x versus z. Okay, well that's not too hard. Now I want to do like a three dimensional x, y, and z kind of a, a, a space, if you will. You know, all that kind of stuff is doable um, without Chat GPT, but it takes time. And where I've seen the chat GPT here is, is to really cut that time down to make fast change or just simply like, a, you know, change the color from purple to green or something like this. Uh, a lot of things that, that are, again, fairly simple, but take time uh, to do. And, and a lot of the analogy uh, I give people is you could give, I could give any one of us like a test of just simple uh, single digit numeric additions. No subtraction, no division, just three plus six, four plus eight, whatever. Um, and you can all, do, all of us could do them perfectly. But if I told you you had to do 500 in 30 seconds, all of us would fail. Okay, you just physically can't do it fast enough. And I think that's where you leverage uh, something like GPT. So at any rate, but yeah, so I played around a little bit with it. Um, unfortunately, because of my, my health situation, I just haven't had time to really dig in. But I'm really looking forward now as they integrate this say with the Microsoft Office suite and, and just now as you're getting on to newer versions and you're getting new entrants into the market. Um, and that, that's probably one thing that's going to be interesting is, is as reading from Professor Malik now, there might be like six or seven different GPTs out there. Um, you know, there's a couple that everybody uses, but then there's some newer ones. And just because um, the Bing related one, for example, is one of the first doesn't mean it may be the best in the long run. It reminds me a lot of the internet in the early days or reminds me a lot of of uh, even cell phones, you know, like Nokia used to be like this huge uh, cell phone manufacturer, but they didn't quite make the jump to smartphones <laughs> like Samsung and iPhone and and that. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, looking back five years from now, sort of how things shake out. Fascinating. I thought we know a lot about ChatGPT. How about no. you, Dave? Okay. Yeah, you know, I've in terms of ChatGPT, I've only really played around with it a little bit, and mostly for things like um, you know, summarizing uh, weather and climate. Like, for instance, I kind of wanted to see uh, what it would spit out when I 
write a quarterly review of the weather that we've seen in South Central Texas since, say, in this case, since June 1st uh, in meteorological summer. And uh, some, you know, interesting things, you know, uh, are, are typically generated and it's not always 100% accurate, but sometimes it can be like a starting point to help me save time on a two page you know, summary, uh, that kind of stuff. Nothing too out there science-y, but um, you know, it, I can definitely see the benefits as a time saver when it comes to, to that kind of, you know, base level information. That's awesome. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that a lot too. People using it for summarization. By the way, this is Matthew. Uh, he's one of my co-hosts. He's also my brother. And he's a storm chaser and uh, I'll let him introduce himself. Yeah, so I'm wearing the shirt, Mississippi State. I'm, I'm going there in the fall. Um, it's weather's always been my passion, um, and so I've uh, I've done a few local uh, expeditions with uh, some severe weather in the area, and um, most notably the uh, the fun Round Rock one that happened last year. Um, but I was wondering, um, so. Because, you know, sometimes there are days when more severe weather is uh, more prevalent and then there would be some spotters that would be necessary. I honestly want to go into forecasting. Um, spotting is just uh, something to keep me occupied in the meantime. But um, the necessity for spotters, if I'm not mistaken, would be to fill in the gap between what you see on radar and then what you see in person. Um, I noticed that some, I mean, we've been pampered here at the New Braunfels kind of region just because of how well our region is covered by the radars. But for instance, like this year with Rolling Fork, um, I know that that is a huge radar hole um, in Northeast Louisiana. Um, like, what do you guys think would be an adequate radar height um, to, to tell like very accurate data? Like when, when is it too high? Keith, you want me to take that or you want that one? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, we have more tools than just radar available at our disposal. Um, you know, radar is obviously the primary thing that, that um, our forecasters are, are, you know, looking at when making warning decisions. And that is harder to do when that beam height at the lowest level starts to climb above, say, you know, 6,000 feet or so, uh, and especially over 10,000 feet. You're really not getting much good information, especially in, in respect to velocities at that level. Um, but, you know, we're also utilizing, uh, you know, our, our mesoanalysis, which is our um, deep dive into the, the weather parameters that are, are around in that area. We're utilizing satellite information. Uh, all of these tools are also being incorporated within um, situational awareness tools that we use. Like one of them is called NSSL's Prob Severe. Um, and it incorporates, you know, information from radars, from satellites, from the environmental information uh, to sort of give an idea of the, the you know, potential for um, a storm producing a tornado or producing one inch or greater hail or 58 mile an hour winds or greater. Um, so, you know, radar is one of the primary tools, but it's not the end all be all. And we do still have the ability to monitor and warn on storms, even in those areas where there are, you know, uh, radar gaps, for lack of a better term. Yeah. I, and I think I, I was just talking to this guy yesterday. Uh, if, are you familiar with Zeus AI by any chance? They, they do some work with NASA. Uh, they so the, the you know, Thomas Vandal, he's an amazing guy. He was talking about using image super resolution for those because uh, we talked about those same things, um, those radar gaps. And his take was kind of unusual. Uh, he he takes the image from his geosynchronous satellites and he super enhances it with AI. And so I guess segueing because. I guess I didn't really lay up the uh, introduction to what the podcast is. Well, uh, we can we can retroactively put that in the right place. But uh, this podcast is meant to introduce people to experts in industries. Like for this first series, is going to be weather, and we're going to move into different like medical and other other areas. But 
whether and then how it's being integrated with AI and how generative AI can be used for good because so many people are scared of AI and they should be because if no one understands AI, then the only people that understand AI are the ones that either have good intentions and are really good at it or bad intentions and are really good at it. And so we need to be sure that we're informing people. So for our listeners, it's great that we have both of you and Matthew as a storm, you're a storm spotter. So we have a lot of different perspectives coming into this. And I'm a data analyst, so I feel like I'm a little bit more on the data side. Um, but uh, we, yes, Thomas Vandal yesterday talked about these super resolution image, image enhancers and how it can boost our, he said eight times traditional radar. And I was, I was like, what? Eight times? And he's like, yeah, for, for precipitation in an area, you can get eight times more granular with their product. And just by using, um, John, you may have heard of these ERGANs, which if you played around with Python at all, you've probably seen them fly across your GitHub or something. And they're usually used for like family photos to enhance a family photo that's really old and grainy. Um, but he used it for weather. Thought that was pretty amazing. Um, so, John, I'd like to get your input first, if you don't mind. Sure. Kind of segueing off of what Matthew just said, what role do storm chasers and field meteorologists, uh, what, what role do they play in, say, the National Weather Service ability to confidently warn storms? Yeah, it's, it's really key. Uh, from a lot of different perspectives. Um, obviously there are, as we as we maybe talked about a little bit earlier, there are um, some gaps in the radar network. Now, some of those are filled in. There are some private sector radars, uh, television station radars that can fill in that. A good example locally is uh, Texas A&M uh, University's meteorology program, and they maintain a radar uh, that we have access to in sort of the Houston and Fort Worth offices. Um, so that fills in, uh, there's not really a gap there uh, but it gives us closer uh, information than the radars in Houston, New Braunfels, or Fort Worth, or, or even uh, Granger. Um, a bigger concern or, or, or issue, uh, again, is as far as the radar detecting storms, uh, like we mentioned earlier, anything um, by the time the beam height gets to about 6,000 feet, you're already missing a lot of the real critical part of the storm for tornado genesis, the formation of tornadoes, which is typically at or below that level. Um, and so that's one thing uh, as far as tornadoes go. Now for hail, one of the things that's interesting is uh, the um, number and size of the hailstones uh, can mask what's actually going on there. So for example, one large hailstone, say like a golf ball, might be equivalent to 27 little hailstones. So if I get the reflectivity back from that, segment, I don't know if it's one of these, a bunch of those, or a mix of them. Uh, sometimes it's it's hard to tell that, and especially again, as you get it further ranges. So where storm spotters really uh, fill in for us are, are basically under the storm, eyes under the storm, that sort of real-time verification. One thing that's been obviously a big change, um, I've been in meteorology for 30 years. You know, when I started 30 years ago, there was barely internet, there were no cell phones, um, it's certainly not smartphones, certainly certainly not uh, the ability to take an image and send it immediately and also have your geolocation, you know, your GPS plotted location. So now with things like Spotter Networks, a good example, a lot of spotters sign up with that. Um, that's a, a private organization that works with the Weather Service where people basically put their information down and then in real time they can broadcast their location. So you actually see where they're at on top of the radar or, or underneath the radar, if you want to look at it. Um, and more than once, I chase myself. Uh, I take two weeks of vacation every year. I go with a, a guy from um, the Rapid City, South Dakota weather office. And uh, we usually, uh, depends, sometimes it goes early as late April, sometimes is or late as early June, but we usually end up in Kansas, um, Texas Panhandle, Oklahoma, Nebraska. But I've even been called out in the field. Um, the Amarillo office called us one time and said, uh, you know, uh, hey, uh, that storm that's coming up from your Southwest, you know, radar shows, that it's got golf ball hail. Can you let us know as soon as it comes, you know, reaches your location or are you moving? And oh, no, we'll stay put. We're at a car wash, so we were sort of safe. The car was underneath. 
but that's really critical information. It really helps us, especially as the storm initially develops and initially reaches severe um, conditions. That's when it's most critical. A lot of times once storms get developed and get somewhat steady state, I hate to say that, but very few storms are steady state, but once they get developed in that and we've, we've got sort of a, a track on it, we've got an association in our mind either from that storm or other storms uh, that have formed in the area in the last, you know, say hour or so, we can do we can do a really good job. But that, that first storm of the day, um, like I said, sometimes uh, it's, it's hard to tell. Uh, we, we have a general idea how the atmosphere changes across our service area. We service 33 counties, including all of Austin, all of San Antonio, all the way out to the Rio Grande. Um, so we definitely have, it's not one atmosphere over that entire 33 counties. That's never the case. There's always at least maybe two or three um, different kinds of atmosphere. We either have the sea breeze pushing in or the dry line pushing in from the west or maybe a cold front coming down or maybe just uh, lift from the elevated plateau of the hill country or the Mexican mountains. So a lot of times it's the, the spotters really help us identify what's going on. And again, from a radar perspective, I, I can show you two ident almost identical images with a hook echo and a velocity couplet and everything looks great. Um, and one of those storms has a tornado actually in progress. The other storm never produced even a wall clock. It was just a flat base the entire time. Even if we got all of that uh, right, let's say, there's still an issue, and this gets back to what you're mentioning uh, of, of other people using some of the uh, AI perspectives um, as far as data analysis. The other thing is, and this this is really a curveball, even for even for GPT and AI, is we have to be able to forecast. In other words, it's not a, a great use for me to tell people once the tornado is already down and damaging, hey, there's a trend. Now there's value in that for people further further downstream. But obviously what we would like to do is be able to predict 10 or 15 minutes ahead of that tornado touching down or more that it's gonna, that it's gonna touch down. Uh, that's the tricky part, um, because again, what I've seen is, is um, you know, again, with a lot of the algorithms of, of, of what's going on in the background of AI is whether it has the ability to look at current data and then based off whatever it's, it's been in its training data set or, or, or whatever, be able to make a projection. In other words, I think AI is great for uh, recapturing things that are already out there and, and organizing them and putting them up. But if you've never seen that before, in other words, if it doesn't have access to data, I don't know what you get necessarily get back uh, as far as a response from that. Uh, so that'll be interesting in an image processing uh, thing. But again, the, the spotters are key. Yeah, Matthew, do you have anything to add to that? Because I know I, I, I just realized as, as John was answering, I totally cut your question off. Um, your question about the radar height I think you partially addressed it, John, but can you restate your question, Matthew, so I make sure we get it answered? Uh, yeah, I think Keith was saying a little bit about the uh, the use of, like, from the National Severe Storms Laboratory, uh, being able to use their resources to uh, help. And that's something that I use, like, something that I did as a spotter. Um, and, of course, y'all use this forecasting. Um I uh, was just thinking, like, I, I use it to see where the dry line is necessarily and then see where, for instance, some confluence bands may be. Um, I was out chasing the uh, Rolling Fork tornado uh, earlier this year and was able to basically see um, the storms crazily followed the prefrontal confluence bands. It was kind of like right along those isobars. Um, the um, about two isobars in front of the main forcing, which was, you know, quite incredible. I mean, it was a big, um, it was quite a, a big, uh, um, what is it called? Oh, trough ejection. But um, yeah, it, it was just, uh, it was crazy. So I guess in order to restate the question, uh, I get off on tangents. In order to restate the question, I guess for the for the audio and the podcast, it would be, um, what what height is good for the um, the availability to, or I guess what what beam height is too high, and I think yeah, John answered was about six thousand is it was probably the the top of that um, that height. Yeah, no, Keith, if you wanted to restate, I think you'd summarized it. Right. Yeah. So you know, in terms of just 
straight information from the radar and, and in particular, you know, reflectivity and, and radial velocity, Doppler velocity, you know, that it becomes less and less useful above 6,000 feet. At, at that point, sometimes you're still catching part of the mid-level mesocyclone. Sometimes you're not, especially on more shallow storms, um, which, you know, at least here in South Central Texas are a little bit less common than they are, say, near the Gulf Coast um, of, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, etc. Um, but but again, radar isn't our only tool, you know, in our pocket. In, within AWIPS, as we're you know looking at, at data and in, information in the office, and also you know spotters are, are an incredibly important tool in our pocket as well for the for the ground truth of what we're looking at in the rest of the data. I love that a ground, like the most essential term in in AI of all time. Um, um, so so to kind of get us back to the thing that we mentioned, we mentioned this just a tiny bit earlier, but um, hypothetically, if there was a social media network, and this social media network, which is hypothetical, um, what was critical to getting information to the National Weather Service, uh, I'll just restate this. Uh, so, with Twitter, how often do you use Twitter? Is that something you can answer? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we use it every single day in the office, um, and then our use, you know, ranges pretty widely. Uh, we're we're posting to it every single day with our forecast information, uh, you know, the message of the day. Uh, safety information is big. We're pushing out information, especially this time of year, on heat safety. Um, but you know, ahead of severe weather events, we're pushing out information on severe weather safety, on winter weather safety in the winter, etc. Uh, but we're also, you know, receiving information back from our public, from uh, from spotters on a regular basis. You know, there are a number of different ways that we receive spotter reports, and that can range from, you know, pre-existing networks of volunteers like COCORAS, which is the Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network. Uh, you know, the primary purpose of that is daily rainfall observations, but we do get real-time hail, um, you know, measurements from those spotters into our office. Uh, we also have, you know, John mentioned the spotter network earlier. Um, and then historically, we've, you know, we train spotters via our Skywarn program and have for several decades. Um, but, you know, in today's world, anyone could really be a spotter. Uh, you know, all you need is access to the internet and the knowledge to know who to send that report to. So, you know, we use a, a hashtag. Uh, EWX spotter for our office and anyone can use that hashtag on their post ideally they're you know following the recommended um, you know needs of, of the information that, that we need from them which is their the time the location and and the condition you know what what it is that uh, that they're reporting um, but you know Twitter's been an invaluable tool for us I've worked uh, you know countless events where um, within you know five even within two minutes sometimes i'm looking at a picture of hail that just fell and i'm able to relay that to our warning forecaster to let them know what's happening so that it confirms what they're looking at on radar and more importantly so they can put that information in an update of the warning so it's getting out to um you know traditional media sources and and we're pushing it out via as many channels as possible um and and making sure that uh you know folks are prepared for whatever the severe you know, event it is that that's coming their way. Pat, um, so yeah, I think I think something that has been in the back of my in the back of my head since since there was a uh, the rate limiting event happened with Twitter, which um, I'll speak to a different person that I talked to. They they were mentioning that that was difficult for for them as a chaser um and more and it's not really about twitter per se it's not, not not a fault thing it's more just looking at oh we suddenly realized twitter was like essential for knowing weather on the ground and getting that real-time data getting the images getting the video and knowing like you said geotagged information about where that was um so I think I, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm juggling these questions around now. But uh, with that being said, I think is I was curious to know, John, what was your 
what are your thoughts about the big data? Because I know that it's a kind of a buzzword now, big data, but almost an old buzzword at this point. Um, but for, for using big data for things that will one day be known as like the, the next Joplin tornado, like when we, like 10 years from now, whenever we're referring to our Joplin tornado event, um, how ready do you think meteorologists are to begin partnering, like partnering with AI or AI developers in in a collaborative capacity? Do you think we could see AI developers as like a next generation of spotter network of sorts? Oh boy, you got a lot packed in there. <laughs> so let's 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 uh, let's sort of go through this step. I sort of anticipated you'd have a question along these lines, so I've sort of got a little bit of a of an outline in my head. So one of the things uh, with meteorology and forecasting or warnings is there's sort of two system limitations. So one way meteorology is viewed is what they call an initial value problem. And what that means is that we don't know the starting state of the system at any given time. So even with all the satellites, all the radars, all the observational networks, whatever you want, even if every single person in the U.S. had a weather station in their hand and was reporting second by second, there would still be, uh, you know, 100 yards away from you, nobody standing there. Now, the temperature, and you know, 100 yards away from where you're at, there's probably not a big change from where you're at, but there are large areas, uh, especially in the western half of the U.S., where it could be tens of miles with zero information on it. Um, and that's over land. Uh, then you have situations in the U.S., the West Coast, Gulf Coast, East Coast, we have the ocean, and there's probably never going to be observations for that level over the ocean. So one of the issues that we have is even with the tremendous advances in computer models uh, and 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 Keith and myself and anybody that looks at, at models every day, especially ensembles. So it's the same model structure. All we've done is make small perturbations to try to get an envelope of solutions. The fact that you get an envelope of solutions uh, right away tells you that we we don't uh, that, that you're never going to fully solve that. Uh, in other words, if if it was perfectly perfectly prescribed system, you wouldn't get an you wouldn't get an envelope of solutions. You'd get maybe two solutions, or you should get one solution. So that's going to be a big limitation. Um, even for a, what we call a mesoscale model, so three kilometer grid spacing and, and hourly resolution, or even if you work that back to maybe 10 minute time resolution, you're always gonna have that kind of uncertainty because again, at the end of the day, to really be useful, it's gotta have a predictive nature to it. We can't be getting the, you know, getting the model output as we're trying, as the storm's already formed. So there's always gonna be a limitation from that standpoint. There's gonna be so far, it doesn't matter if you have AI or anything else, uh, the, the best way to solve that is more observations. Um, now, whether or not you can, sort of like we were talking earlier, you can leverage uh, AI for either satellite imagery uh, manipulation or radar imagery manipulation or, or uh, just the way that you plot fields from say station observations. There may be some ways to do that, but there is gonna be an inherent limit. The other part, or the other thing is we call a boundary value problem. This is when you start getting into longer term um, uh, averages. So for climate is a good example. So the day-to-day -day or the hour by hour minute, my minute doesn't necessarily matter as much as just your general understanding of the system. And a very good example of that is what we've been going through the last couple of years now into this year, and this uh, maybe Keith can talk about this a little bit, is the El Nino, La Nina, or ENSO system. We understand a lot of that. We don't understand all of it. But if you're looking at, uh, say, a, a monthly or seasonal outlook, the status of that is much more important than the initial values I would get from starting the model on a particular day. Um, so th there's sort of two limitations there uh, that, that, that are, that are going to be, uh, I'll say, troublesome uh, for AI uh, to fit in. Now, there are some research uh, activities already going on. Um, I've got some uh, web links uh, that I can I can you can attach to the podcast, but our Storm Prediction Center, which is part of the Weather Service in Norman, Oklahoma, they have uh, a sort of a machine learning algorithm called SCRAM that combines with the high resolution rapid refresh, our, sort of our most consistent short range model um, that actually produces sort of a probability of severe weather, tornado, hail or wind across the US. Um, also Colorado State University, a couple of professors there 
uh, have also come up with the machine learning. Uh, similarly, it's a probability based thing, and they also select one with the point with the highest probability. And then last, uh, NCAR, National Center for Atmospheric Research, they have a, a neural net. Uh, again, machine learning is fed with the HER, again, the higher resolution rapid refresh. Same kind of thing, where it's a probability, sort of probability grids, and you can sort of watch like as a squall line move. So there's already some efforts underway, and those things are, are products basically today anybody could look at. Uh, so they're already out there. Um, so so that's sort of where we're at, uh, at least at least nowadays. To me, I see the value um, more so in, in, we'll call it the proprietary data sets. And I mean proprietary in terms of like a business. One thing about the United States is is generally uh, the, the regulation, or if you will, with the federal government, any, any data that we collect is just freely available. That's not the case with some some uh, other countries uh, where their where their National Meteorological Service has a private sector branch and a public sector branch. In, in, the, in the U.S., basically, if the Weather Service generates it, we put it out somewhere. Um, and, and a lot of times that is in a big data sense. Um, I know that our, our radar data is hosted. Uh, Amazon Web Services uh, is, is one of the hosts of that, as an example. So, um, you know, that's sort of the background of what can be done. Um, again, processing speed is really going to be critical um, because if you've got uh, something that would be even like a five-minute time step, five minutes is forever uh, as far as the tornado genesis goes. I mean, you can, I've, I've been on storms and I've been chasing for 30 minutes of a wall cloud and the wall clouds are rotating and all looks fantastic and you just keep going and keep going and keep going. And then finally, finally you get interaction with some kind of a local boundary or something that producing the rear flank downdraft comes around, you get the tornado finally at that point. Um, so in other words, if your update cycle is hourly or 30 minutes, you're not gonna see things like that, and even down to five minutes. And then there's a whole issue then too, of it depends what the purpose is. If it's warning in the weather service office, we're always gonna be hooked up to high speed, you know, um, fiber, that's fine. But if you're trying to relate that say to an emergency manager, uh, who's out in the field with their phone, or maybe think like a mobile home park would be another example of somebody, uh, then getting that kind of information out to them, uh, you know, at, at a high volume like that might be tricky. And a lot of us chasers, one of the one of the downsides of chasing, which nobody really talks about, people have never been chasing before, is especially in, in, the, in the Great Plains, you know, places like Kansas, Texas, Panel, Oklahoma, you're talking pretty rural areas. So you have some out and out places with no cell connectivity and then you've got some where it's very you know it's meant for a low population density and all of a sudden you've got three or four hundred extra chasers all wanting data feed and so it basically comes to a grind um, and then that can be that can be a bit of a surprise for for people that have never chased before their first time out because then you can't over rely on the technology you actually have to have the background understanding of, of the storm structure and what's going on that day. Otherwise you could really end up in a, in a dangerous position because you're just limited to your eyesight basically at that point. Um, so I think I answered most of it. How's that sound? Did I get most of it? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> most of it handled. Um, but, uh, it, oh, one of those, I was saying one last thing. The other thing I see, and, and we can maybe talk about this more is, is um, and, and keep touch on this a little bit with the mesoscale part is I see using uh, a GPT or AI as as the backbone or background to our situational awareness. So one of the problems that we've got in the weather service is is not, we used to say a fire hose of data. Honestly, it's like Niagara Falls of data. And even just from, say, social media platforms, we were talking about Twitter, but there are other platforms out there. It's one of the concerns I have uh, is we might see fragmentation and one thing we can't do is, is I can monitor a couple different channels. I can't monitor 500 channels at once as a person. I can't do that. Um, so I, I like to think of, of AI if it's designed properly. Of, of think of like a uh, almost like an airline uh, airliner cockpit or like a nuclear power plant. You've seen the big sort of alert alarm boards. I see something like that where it helps us maintain or monitors what's going on in the background, whether that be meteorological fields or spotter reports or whatever. And then it brings them to our attention as, as need be. So it, sort of describing this, it would be great to see on radar the storm moving and here's our severe thunderstorm warning. It'd be great to see a pop-up, you know, you know, from Twitter, golf ball hail at this location now. And then as the storm moves on five more minutes, pop up, 
70 mile an hour wind reported from Kokoraz. That would really that would really help us out a lot to get sort of everything sort of uh, collapsed down to one screen that has all information rather than you know this kind of thing back and forth. That is um, such a good idea. Uh, that actually was the next question I was going to ask you. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> so I guess, Keith, what were your thoughts? <laughs> a little bit to what he was he was saying in a few of those points. Um, you know, there that would be great because we do have so many different networks. I mentioned a few earlier, but there are even more. You know, there's um there's Mping, which technically was built as a system for researchers, but is also used by us in real time. Um, you know, folks on their apps, you know, on their phones can just, uh, in a few button pushes, press, this is what I've seen, whether that be, you know, snapped branches or, um, you know, uh, the specific size of hail. And that's coming through in our systems in AWIPS that's visible on, on various weather apps. Uh, but it would be nice to have all of those different systems, you know, spotter network, mping um you know things that come through on various social media sites all concatenated in one place that would make things a lot easier for us on sort of an unrelated note um i'm not necessarily an expert on you know this machine learning and ai stuff but the parts of it that i do understand are that um you know it it likely will uh lead to a, a reduction in computing costs in terms of being able to run you know say even hundreds of different um you know uh, ensemble members now with traditional dynamical models you know we're only running 25 or 50 or so and that's giving us a good look at the envelope of solutions but reality often falls outside that envelope uh, one thing, though, that, that you know we have to be careful with with machine learning is that we're we're usually training this on uh, you know real world data, but uh, simply because of, the, of of that, because of the nature of that, we're often going to have to be very careful when it comes to extreme events. And extreme events are where we as meteorologists are really you know earning our money. That's where uh, you know we're we're actually uh, actively protecting life and property and. Um, you know, machine learning, you know, over time will get better at being able to recognize and predict extreme events. But if it's being trained on a, uh, you know, a data that's occurring here in the center of the bell curve most of the time, it may not necessarily be great at picking up those, you know, first percentile, 99th percentile type events that are the most impactful uh, for, you know, human beings. That's an excellent point because yeah, lots of times people don't know that about about machine learning that that it is a bell curve and that what we're training it on directly impacts the output. And yeah, it feels like it's almost necessary that we have a normal weather model and a severe weather model that's trained on everything that goes outside those inner quartiles, so that it just looks at all of the anomalous events and goes, "Hey, this looks like an anomalous event because I've been trained on these things." Um, that's so. Thank you for bringing that up, Keith. Uh, on the same point here, uh, or I guess similar, you said, John, about eyesight limits, um, or limited to eyesight. I I talked to Thomas Vandal yesterday about this exact thing. Uh, uh, so people that are streaming their webcams while they're chasing, I'm fascinated by that because as a, as a data analyst, slash scientist slash whatever you would call my current position as me um nerd uh i i am absolutely all in on this idea of what like, so what if we had all the dash cams and we started training those training visual models and we trained them on all, all that live streaming it's just a sequence of photos that makes a video you just keep training on those photos and then w correlating it to the weather on the ground in the spot where the car is. So that even if the car goes outside of its, like say it doesn't have service anymore, uh, it could be that chasers are, su are supplied with some sort of onboard computing chip that has a GPU in it that can uh, give real-time danger assessment based on just looking at the cloud from the dash cam. And that would make it where, even if it's not coming directly from the National Weather Service, they have some idea of how 
should I keep going forward or should I stop? And that would also inform the National Weather Service if they were able to get that report out, like with satellite. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I would say at least at first, I hope they know more about the storm structure they don't need. <laughs> that can be a little bit dangerous. But um, but yeah, they're, they're definitely, and, and you've, you've seen that already with, I, I think, a lot of our, our vehicles uh, where it's got the blind spot detector or your, your, your distance to the car in front of you, and you get the alert if you're braking, if you have to brake too hard or you're not braking at all. And, and that's that, those are more sort of straight, simple, you know, ping and, and ping back kind of things. Um, but uh, yeah, some of the best application I've seen so far seems to be, and I guess you'll cover this when you talk to your, your uh, medical experts, uh, is looking at imagery, uh, say um, x-ray imagery, CAT scan imagery, whatever. And, and you know, imagery is imagery and you're basically looking for the patterns at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, to correlate the location uh, of, the, of the observing unit with what it's seeing, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that'd be definitely an interesting project to try. I mean, I, I definitely would, would like to see that uh, see that done. Um, yeah, it'd be it'd be interesting, and especially if you started out with isolated storms. Now, another place you could get in a little trouble there uh, that we see times when you have st multiple storms form and then they, the outflows or, or the storms themselves start merging. That could, that could be really tricky. But um, we certainly have off the Mexican mountains, we have these isolated supercells. Uh, that, that track then into our area. And those, they're typically high precipitation supercells. So they bring flash flooding, large hail, downbursts, tornadoes. I mean, the sort of the whole gamut of severe weather. And, and from a single perspective, uh, you could definitely do that. One of the things, uh, one of the, sort of the public outreach talks I do is on the topic of phenology, which is the study of how plants and animals and their life cycles relate to weather and and uh, and solar radiation, basically. So, in other words, when do the trees bud in the spring? When do the flowers come out? This kind of thing. When you harvest it. One of the interesting things I noted there is in Sweden, they've got a lot of webcams uh, that have fixed locations, but they're they're focused on small lakes or streams. And then what they've done over the years then is they basically have this long-range climatology of when the ice forms, how how sort of thick it gets, and when the ice goes out in the spring um, over many years. So that'd be a, another sort of application along the lines of what you're talking about, where where you, right now it's just pictures, but you could obviously apply uh, sort of a brightness, if you will, or or, or other factors, um, and even even just putting in a case like that, putting like a reference stick out in the out in the center, then you could actually get it get some kind of a reading off of it. Um, but yeah, that, that's definitely an interesting. Uh, thing to try. I don't know that it would ever be on like every vehicle, but at least with the spotters, that would solve that problem that, that we did talk about where your out of cell service or the cell service is, is just overloaded. That, that is such a, so it's called phenology? Phenology, yeah. P-H-E-N-O-L-O-G-Y. And, and so it covers things like bird migrations, whale migrations, anything that plants or animals are doing relative to weather, usually temperature and precipitation, but also just, just to the amount of sunlight they're getting uh, during these. Some of the things have nothing to do with temperature or precipitation. It's just the through the through the plant's development cycle. They, they just know the days are longer, for example. And then, uh, so it's why the leaves fall off the trees in the fall. It's another good example. Uh, but you can track that. It's, it's one of the best uh, trackers we actually have of climate change because um, with, with a lot of climate change, people get overly wrapped around the wheel of, you know, the temperature's gone up by X point X, you know, degrees or whatever. But one thing, one things that, that are very much more clearly seen, I guess we'll say, uh, for example, would be, um, I grew up in Minnesota. So when you saw the first robin at the end of the winter, usually it was in late February uh, or early March. Um, if that was happening, say 50 years ago around that time, and now it's happening the first of February, you know that everybody sees this kind of thing or and again you, you could track any plant any animal um and its life patterns you know when do bears start hibernating is another example uh, all these kinds of things you'll you'll see uh, a more representative shift uh of how the climate changes either locally or globally so there's been a lot of study in that so it's interesting and it's something that people can uh can see in their own backyard the only area own area that they live in um you know, uh, one of the things, again, with me growing up in Minnesota is Halloween, when I was a kid 50 years ago, and I'm sure how old I am, it was a little bit of a 50-50 thing, what you did on, you're going to go trick-or-treating on, on Halloween. 
because we could easily have eight inches of snow on the ground. So if you had some little thin costume, you're going to freeze, right? And now it's extremely rare, just 50 years later, it's extremely rare not to have snow on the ground where I grew up almost until Thanksgiving. So that's three, three weeks, four weeks later. Um, so it wouldn't be a concern at all for, say, like my grandkids. I wouldn't even think about, you know, I'll wear whatever I'm going to wear. It'll be warm enough. I'm not to worry about it. So that that's an example of a of a of a kind of change. But but yeah, it's it's something that that again, you know, getting back to that visual imagery um, standpoint, uh, and that's something again that they train a lot of people. One of the things we do is we do courses that train these master naturalists to to see all this. But again, you could just as easily have a visual representation of that plant or whether or not the birds have made their nest and whether or not the eggs have hatched and this kind of thing. You could certainly have a, a camera representing that as well. Uh, that, that is like, I can't even tell you how, how happy that makes me that that's on your radar. Uh, <laughs> but uh, like I have literally a paper on my wall right here that says there are thousands of webcam feeds that are live streaming across the earth. I'm like, that would be amazing if we could just figure out a way to use computer vision to model that. That's so important. And that is something I think people can really get on board with. Whether or not they believe in like the uh, colloquial climate change, the like conspiratorial climate change, or whether they just want their plan to be better, I think anyone agrees that like having a better sensor network is good. And using like the animals as the sensors that is amazing it, that costs nothing That's great perspective uh i i uh i yeah. can't help but i got excited when you talk about the uh i think keith was talking about the the inso models um about how that works with um with the nino oscillation and I've been doing some work lately, just practice forecasting. And I've been doing it on things that are a lot more predictable, like hurricane season is coming up. And the day that the Weather Channel and the Colorado State University put out their their updated uh, hurricane forecast due to the warmer waters, um, I kind of doubled down on my um, below average season, uh, just simply because ever since 1950, you know, we've had this reference data set from from the El Nino Southern Oscillation that shows what those values are. And uh, I looked at about four years that were pretty similar, 1965, 1972, 1976, and 1997. And uh, all those were transitioning uh, La Niñas in the winter to strong El Niños in the summer and fall and winter. And uh, so I was looking kind of more towards a year of like 1965 and 1972. Um, and there were uh, about 10 named storms that year. Um, I know that uh, somebody once told me, they said, if you were able to um, predict where the wind would go, you'd be able to predict all weather accurately um, just because of how, how forceful the wind is and, the, um, and, and how the wind brings about weather into different areas but with those like i know the climate prediction center uses a lot of those um el nino and la niñas to to predict there and i've noticed that like for instance some mcvs and like derechos that they often kind of in the very front you know they can create tornadoes little spin-ups in the uh, in the front and uh, but generally they're just a giant windstorm and so I kind of like related that to, I like relating larger scale events to smaller scale events. And I was looking to see if that kind of holds up, like from y'all's point of view, like y'all's perspective. Like um, I, I like to relate the like, derechos that can cause tornadoes or spin ups on the front to like a rear flank gust front, um, taking that large scale and then shrinking it. And then the low pressure that forms that would be like the the tornado you know um is that something that's pretty accurate or is it kind of like pretty distant uh, there's a lot of differences between the large and the small scale uh when it comes to the weather and, and largely that's due to uh, the coriolis force it does not have strong impacts on very small scales it does have large impacts on very large scales 
Um, so when you're talking about the tropics, talking about hurricanes, the, cor the Coriolis force plays a big role. Tornadoes, it really doesn't. Um, I I would say, you know, you were, you were talking about Enso and, and the, the outlook for this season. Um, you know, the, the official NOAA outlook uh, is due to be updated in, in uh, early August. I can't say for sure what it will say, but the one that was issued in May does call for, you know, um, the potential for a near normal season. But I think it's important to point out that those are probabilistic outlooks. Um, for example, this one in particular has a 40% chance of a near normal season and then equal 30% chances of above and below. And that is largely due to those competing factors um, that especially back in May, uh, when when the official outlook was issued, you know, you have, you have to look at, at all of those things in tandem. Like, yes, El Nino does increase shear in the Atlantic Basin, which we all know is bad for tropical development. However, those increased SSTs are also meaningful. The the, the waters in the in the you know Atlantic and and really in most oceans right now are incredibly warm, uh, and you know, the hurricanes thrive on very warm SSTs. They draw a lot of their energy from that warm water. In addition, a lot of Atlantic Basin hurricanes uh, or you know, it, tropical storms, tropical systems in general, uh, form in what we call the main development region, which is sort of off the coast of Africa. And so these easterly waves develop over the African continent and then move eastward with the trade winds off of, uh, you know, the uh, sub-Saharan Africa and into the Atlantic Ocean. And there's an expectation this year that there will be a, a more active than normal season of those waves. And so the combination of that with the, uh, you know, increased SSTs is, is part of what led them to still put out that near normal outlook uh, back, back in May. Now we'll see what holds in, um, uh, you know, in, in the update, but I know some of the climate models are still looking at some, you know, maybe above normal activity in portions of that main development region. Now, the good news for us is that a lot of those storms don't make it all the way to Texas. Uh, but, you know, there's no saying with any sort of certainty whether or not, you know, that that's going to hold this year. And also, you know, the, the rest of America and, and, of course, the Caribbean will still need to be, you know, <laughs> in a state of heightened awareness, even if that outlook changes to below normal, because all it takes is one storm to cause big, big problems. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I know we're coming up, up on the uh, top of the hour, but and I, don't, and I don't want to push y'all beyond what time you have available, but I would, I would like one last question to get in there about because you mentioned hurricanes, this is a fascinating thing. I, just, I read the other day, there's a tiered framework and the acronym is ESCAPE. And you can look it up. Um, it's a paper that was written with reinforcement learning approaches towards evacuating people from cities that are in danger of hurricanes. And um, with the, like historically we've had those incidents that happened uh, in Houston, where people died on the highway because they were trying to escape at the same time. Um, that's just another area where you can apply machine learning and AI to intelligently, which is, uh, when I say intelligently, I'm, in, I'm meaning like with computer intelligence, uh, in, evacuate people in tiers and safely get them out of coastal areas by those probabilistic models. Because if, you're go if it's a probabilistic model, I mean, there's always going to be, the, like you said, the envelope, those error bars. But I mean, hey, better err on the side of living than err on the side of dying. And I think it's super. So what, but what I'm curious from y'all's perspective, do you think, um, do, you see the, do you see them, like the National Weather Service, being more eager to warn a storm or less eager to warn a storm? than they used to be. Keith, do you want me to take that one or do you want that one? <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that to you if you, if you want to take it. <laughs> awesome. So the question you ask is, is a good one. And it's it's interesting because a lot of the, the public, um, I think have the same question. So the thing we try to do is we try to strive always for to warn or, or notify people, alert people on the weather itself. And we don't try to add these other uh, 
socioeconomic or governmental factors to that. Instead, we choose to partner with local emergency managers, state level officials, and give them the best possible weather intelligence and information we can. But then it's up to their decision. And, and one of the things that you, that you sort of mentioned in terms of hurricane evacuation is there, for example, are some legal laws. For example, in Texas, you cannot be forced to leave your home. Okay, the, 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 uh, the DPS or the sheriff cannot physically come and take you out of your home and force you to evacuate. In some states, uh, other states in the US, that's not the case. They actually can do that. So um, if this is one of the things where I think you're, you're gonna see that, again, we're just in the very early days of AI and machine learning, but, but one of the things that's gonna have to happen is someone could have the, the best tool from a scientific or technological standpoint, but then does, does the law keep up with that? Does societal sort of norms or expectations keep up with that? Um, one of the things that's challenging with hurricane evacuations is, uh, again, there's a, right now, I would call it an area of responsibility. So the city of Houston has a mayor and has a city council and, and they can make their decisions. The city of Galveston, which is obviously closer to the coast, has its own mayor. So one of the problems that we've seen in the Houston area is locations further inland if they issue their evacuation order before the ones on the coast and then all those people get on the highway, basically the people that need to get out first or, or most most uh, you know relevantly need to get out can't actually evacuate them because all the highways are jammed by the people that are much further inland that um, you know there's almost there's no chance of storm surge in downtown Houston as an example because it's not near the ocean. Um, and a lot of times you see people now, and this is a trend just I'll say since Katrina, 2005 is you're seeing a lot of people evacuating if I, I guess I said more out of convenience than actual threat in other words their home at worst is maybe some of the roof comes off like say they're 50 miles inland 70 miles inland but they know that the power is going to be out for say a week and they just don't want to be without air conditioning because it's summertime or they have a medical condition or they need refrigeration or, or whatever so we do not actually try to guess those socioeconomic or governmental factors. In other words, we we don't say, well, gee, that storm's in a rural area. Let's not put a warning out on. It's not going to affect anybody. Or, gosh, that storm's right over downtown Austin. Um, even though it doesn't look like it's really severe, let's go ahead and put out a warning anyway. Um, we really should be focusing on meteorological with the radar satellite observations tell us. And then again, trying to work with the local emergency management, our television meteorology partners, and even through the public, and let them make the best decision, you know, for the for the case that they're in. And a lot of times, um, you know, when I give Skywarn presentations for spotters, I, I try to relate to people. Um, most people have at least two locations they're at in any given day. Now, COVID changed some of it where people are at home more, but in general, in the past, you were at home or you were at work or school, right? So you're in two locations. And what you might do at home could be vastly different than what you do at, at your work or school. But then I, after a while, I realized there's actually been a third location or third and fourth. And it, you know, again, what you would do in a car is much different than what you would do at home. So it's, it's sort of impossible from a weather service standpoint for us to try to provide information for the mass variety of things people do. It's better for us to work again with the emergency managers local officials, and then sort of let them diffuse out, say through school districts, through other groups, um, to try to get, you know, for individual groups. Ideally, we'd have everybody would be weather aware. There's a there's a famous quote from Benjamin Franklin where he says, some people are weather wise, but most are otherwise. You sort of have to think about that a little bit. But, um, that's what we would love from the weather service for everybody to be fully up to speed on, on everything and, and take everything we do you know, uh, you know, interpret it exactly the right way. But, you know, it's just like anything. There's a, there's a range, you know, of, of people's understanding of things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, try to try to, you know, feel feel negatively towards someone. You know, some people aren't just with the life situation they're in right now. Say they've got five kids at home and just everything's crazy. You know, the last thing is to try to maintain, you know, extended knowledge. You know, oh, they're just getting our warnings maybe on their phones or NOAA weather radio or, or local television, they're just not going to be talking like we are about ENSO outlooks and this kind of thing. They just are too busy. Uh, so, so, so that's the thing. So yeah, we don't, again, summarize, we don't ever, you know, gauge our forecast, but we do think about the impacts. And then when we brief um, 
the emergency managers and state and local officials, you know, we, we try to say, uh, you know, hey, here's what we're calling for, say the big ice storm in Austin this last this last year. Hey, we're looking at half to three quarters of an inch of ice based on our past experience in the weather service that that generally is going to cause you some problems, not only with roads, with power and this. And then but that's all we say with it. Then, as far as decisions to go, then that's up to them to make. Thank you for your perspective on that. So, well, we're glad to have you, and thanks for coming on the show. If 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 any of our listeners want to get in touch with you on social media, do you have any specific social media handles you'd like them to go through? Uh, I would just recommend sending us an email. Our email addresses are on our public website, and they're just our names. So mine is Keith.White at Noah.gov, and uh, you know that's that's public information. And I'm happy to uh, to speak with anybody about uh, weather and climate. Great. Well, we appreciate having y'all on the show. And um, I also thank you, Matthew, for joining us and adding adding your weather perspective. Uh, he, as you mentioned, John, he's he's the weather voice that I listen to. <laughs> think about right. um, but we really appreciate it. And we look forward to perhaps talking to you again at some point in the future. And uh, maybe about the EF scale. That would be an interesting one to get into. All right. Well, we appreciate being with you today. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having us. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So once again, that was John Zietler and Keith White from the National Weather Service. And we are so thrilled to have them on the show. Please like and subscribe wherever you're listening and stay tuned for our next episode.